It's in the Old Testament. It's among the minor prophets. It's a book that many of us probably have not spent a lot of time in. Um, in fact, if you would do me this favor, raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon preached through the book of Nahum. The, the preacher in the room has heard a sermon. In the, did you preach that sermon? Okay, okay, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so me either. <laughs> um, I, I uh, was talking to Chad on the phone yesterday, and uh, he said, have you ever heard a sermon in the book of Nahum? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, yeah, me neither. I'm excited to hear yours. Um, <clears throat> I was like, thanks for the encouragement, brother. Um, so uh, as I began to study Nahum, uh, I, I really had no idea uh, at the beginning how to make sense of this, this small book. Um, where to start. You know, when you're preaching through a New Testament passage or a narrative um, or an epistle, you, you get this nice flow of thought. Um, if the Apostle Paul's writing, you get these logical arguments that he's making. Um, it's real easy to get your outline and kind of a breakdown of, of what point he's trying to make. Um, if you're reading a narrative, you have this nice story arc to follow, and you get into the Minor Prophets, and especially for Western uh, Americans, we read this stuff and we're like, I don't know who he's talking to at this point. I don't know what he means by this. Why does he keep repeating himself? Like all, all of these things, it, it, it gets very confusing. And so I think because of that, it's really hard for us to glean much from um, the minor prophets. And so I'm excited that we're doing this series right now that hopefully it will help us together understand better how to read the prophets um, and how to understand them. And so um, if you would look with me at Nahum chapter 1, we're going to read through chapter 1 together, and then we're going to kind of break down um, the whole heart of what Nahum is, is getting at. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. And he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. 
For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard and like the straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says to Judah. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you, king of Assyria. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. For the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Through your prophet, Nahum. God, we ask that what we do not know, you would teach us. What we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us by your spirit, through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 1, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh. We've heard this city's name mentioned before, right? Uh, It was in the book of Jonah. That's right. Some people, this is call and response time. Y'all just feel free anytime um, to jump in. In in the book of Jonah, Jonah is called by God to go prophesy to Nineveh that he's going to destroy them unless they repent. Um, And Jonah reluctantly um, goes to Nineveh finally, after many events conspire to to bring him to Nineveh. He proclaims the judgment of the Lord is coming, and the entire city, and thereby the entire nation of Assyria, and Nineveh serves as the capital, um, repents and turns to the Lord. And so many of you may be a little confused as to why we have gotten to Nahum and now God is like, I'm destroying Nineveh. Um, We're about 125 years after Jonah has prophesied to Nineveh and Nineveh has repented. And apparently Nineveh is back to its old ways. The vast Assyrian empire that Nineveh serves as the capital of was established by bloodshed, massacres, cruelty, torture, destruction. They plundered nations and they exiled people as has seldom been seen in history. They were also, interestingly enough, the inventors of crucifixion. The Romans stole this idea from the Assyrians. And so here we are, a hundred years, a little over a hundred years after Nineveh has repented of all of their wickedness and Nineveh has forgotten the mercy of God and has gone back to its old ways. This should serve as a warning for each one of us. There is an idea, at least there has been an idea in the, in the American church for decades now, I guess, that would preach a gospel that says, you say this prayer after me and you are saved, and once you are saved, you are always saved, eternally secure. 
It's not found anywhere in Scripture. It's an invention of a revivalistic mindset. And so there are lots of people in the church today who said a prayer at one point in their life, and they don't live for God. They don't continue in repentance and faith, but, but they've got this prayer thing that they remember doing when they were six or seven, and they assume that they are, in fact, saved. But the Bible would tell us a different story. It is possible for us to maybe assent to an idea, to, to say a prayer aloud, and not continue on in a life of repentance and faith, to turn back to our sin. It's why the Apostle Paul challenges his readers to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. Examine your life. See if you are indeed trusting Christ now for your life. Are you in a constant state of repentance? And so I would hope we would take this warning from Nineveh. Not just for ourselves, but as a reminder to teach our children this faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is apparent that the Ninevites, when Jonah prophesied to them, really repented. But over a hundred years later, they're back to all of their wicked ways, which means maybe these people at the beginning who actually had faith in God, who had actually repented, didn't teach their children and their children's children, and the nation fell away. So if you're a mom or dad in this room, and you're trusting in Christ, teach your children so that they would be faithful. This pronouncement concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision... Of Nahum. What's interesting about this sentence is this is the only one in all of the prophets that, that says it's a book. Every other one is talked about as a vision, a prophecy, a word from the Lord received by one of these prophets. This is the only one where there's actually a book written down for people to read. So, People speculate, what, what does this mean? Maybe it means that Nahum not only read this book aloud to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, but he also sent this word to the Assyrians in Nineveh to be read to them. Plausible that that was the case? It also could be that this one in particular carries a universal message about the enemies of God and what is coming for his enemies and what is coming for his people. You see, Nahum, the name, is a Hebrew word meaning comfort. And as we open this book and begin to read these next few verses, it doesn't feel very comforting. On initial reading, right? We have, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. For us, that doesn't sound super comforting. That sounds frightful. But this morning, I've entitled this sermon, The Comfort of the Lord, because really what this whole prophecy is, is reminding the people of God that he will ultimately bring justice on the earth. His enemies will be overthrown and his people will be comforted. And I would argue that the message of all of Scripture is that apart from the judgment of sin, the people of God cannot experience salvation and comfort. And we see that as we read through these verses. I'm going to read through 2 through uh, 6 again. And I want you to consider the Exodus. The story of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And I want you to read and, and notice kind of the themes and these words that are, that mirror or reflect the exodus, exodus of God's people out of Egypt. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. Pharaoh experienced all of this in the plagues. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his, is slow to anger. Pharaoh got many, many warnings before God completely crushes him. But he is great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. We have this imagery. God is the pillar of cloud by day, the fire by night that leads the Israelites out of captivity into the wilderness and through the wilderness. He rebukes the sea and it dries up image of the Red Sea parting for his people to walk through on dry ground. He makes all the rivers run dry as the Israelites finally approach the promised land. The Jordan River is parted as well and dried up as his people walk through to the promised land. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. These cities were agricultural cities. They had luscious crops that the Assyrians relied upon. And so God is in the same sentences hearkening back to the Exodus to remind his people of what he did there, but also immediately telling them what he is going to do to Assyria. And so all of these crops, all of these agricultural things they rely on, when he dries up the rivers, they're going to die. And the people will begin to starve. They will become poor. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt. We're reminded of Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the law the mountain shakes and trembles and there are flashes of lightning and thunder as God comes to dwell on the top of that mountain. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even the rocks are shattered before him. We get this idea of a volcano, lava flowing down and breaking the rocks as it flows so as God begins this book of comfort to his people, he first starts by telling them who he is. 
So who is the Lord? He's a jealous God. Now today, we often consider jealousy a bad thing. You shouldn't be jealous of another person, of what they have. But God is jealous for his people as a husband is jealous for his wife. It's out of love for her that he treasures her so deeply that he wants her only for himself. God is jealous for his people in the same way that a wife might be jealous for her husband. She wants him only for herself. So God is jealous for his people and he will fight whoever he needs to fight to keep them for himself. He is an avenging God. He will not let those who attack his people go unpunished. Now God in the past has used Assyria to punish Israel for their idolatry and their adultery. And they're turning away from God. He has used this kingdom of Assyria to punish his own people. In fact, earlier, before this is written, he's, he's used them to completely wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatry, their adultery, and their wickedness. But he won't let them go unpunished even though he has used them in the past to discipline his own people. He will eventually destroy this wicked nation. This is reminiscent of Revelation 6 when we see the saints under the altar crying out to God, when will you avenge our blood? God will take vengeance on the enemy of his people. He is fierce in wrath. Literally, this translates from the Hebrew, he is a master of wrath. Dang. We don't sing any worship songs with that kind of language. God is a master of wrath. He uses it with skill and precision. He harms exactly who he intends to harm. He is slow to anger. See, he's allowed and even used Assyria to conquer other nations. So he has not given them the punishment that they're due yet. He is slow to anger. He'd sent Jonah to Nineveh to repent. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's great in power. And God is just. We see in verse 3, the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. God is just. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. How many of us today feel helpless at the injustices we see around us in our nation and in the world powerless to affect the social injustices, the unrest, the poverty, sex trafficking, all of the wickedness that we see in the world, you may feel like, I don't know what to do. Here is your consolation, people of God. The guilty will not go unpunished. 
The, the Lord is slow to anger. But one day, the guilty will be punished because God is just. Assyria uh, was a dominant power in the Near East for much of the Old Testament. It was heavily militaristic. It conquered other nations by massacre. The, the king was worshipped actually as a god. The women there had very little uh, value compared to even other nations at the time in the ancient Near East. They were wholly dependent on their husbands with very little personal or legal freedom. Punishment for transgressing their established boundaries was severe and often included body mutilation. Assyria deserves the just condemnation that is coming to them. And sadly, our society is much like that of the Assyrians. From chattel slavery and Jim Crow, where we saw human beings created in God's image, treated as properties, separate but equal, enshrined into law, abortion for the last 50 years at any stage of a pregnancy, the killing of millions of babies in the womb has been a plague on our nation. And now so-called gender-affirming care calls for the bodily mutilation of children. We can read through the Old Testament and read about things that these uncivilized savages did. But if we open up our own newspaper, we see that we might try to clean it up with language, but many of these savage practices exist right here around us. And if you're like me, you're overwhelmed by the wickedness that you see. And this word is for us. The guilty will not go unpunished. Verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in a day of distress. Now, if we're not careful, we will read this as kind of a qualification to what Nahum just said. We might be tempted to read it like this. The Lord is jealous, avenging. The Lord takes vengeance. He's fierce in wrath, slow to anger, great in power, never leaving the guilty unpunished, rebukes the sea, the mountains quake, the earth trembles, but the Lord is good. As if Nahum's like, but, but just to remind you, the, the Lord is good. He's all of those things, but also the Lord is good. But that's not how this text should be read. It's not a qualifying statement. It's not as though Nahum is pausing to remind us that God is good in spite of all of these things he says he is. Rather, the statement that the Lord is good, it flows out of what we just read. The Lord is jealous. He's good. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. He's good. 
The guilty will not go unpunished. He's good. It flows out of what we just read. See, a good king punishes the wicked. A good king is jealous for the loyalty of his subjects. A good king fights for his people. A good king punishes the wicked so that his people can rest in security and safety and comfort. We see it around us, right? We go to sleep at night here in Lake Jackson or Clue, Brazoria County, wherever you live here. We go to sleep at night feeling pretty safe and comfortable because we have these places where criminals are kept. We have police that patrol our city to bring justice to the wrongdoer so that we can rest and enjoy life in comfort. See, God's justice reminds us of his goodness. There's an exchange between two beavers, stay with me, and some children in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis that kind of mirrors this idea. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. How beautiful is this picture? If you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis's writing of these stories, it was, it was an allegory meant to portray Aslan as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus risen from the dead. And when the children ask this question, is he safe? They say, of course he's not safe. You don't want a safe king. You want a ferocious king, a king that can fight, a king that can destroy, a king that can judge. But he's good. And oh, that we would have Peter's response. I'm longing to see him, even if I feel frightened at first. We long to see this king. Hebrews 10.31 tells us this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have this idea that there's angry God in the Old Testament and very nice Jesus in the New Testament. 
This was a liberal idea that God is different in the Old Testament and we, we now worship a God who is reflected in Jesus, the, the lowly servant. But Jesus serves as the lowly servant once when he comes to die and after he has ascended, the next time that he comes, he will come as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, with fire in his eyes, a sword coming from his mouth to destroy his enemies forever. This is the King we serve. He is not safe. We should fear. But he is good. And so Nahum pronounces God's judgment upon Nineveh, Assyria, to demonstrate his goodness and to offer comfort to his people. This is what the book of Revelation is about. This is what all of prophecy is about, to remind his people of his justice that is coming and his comfort for those who follow him. There in verse 8, he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. Images of Noah should, should come back to us as God destroys the entire earth with a flood, this cleansing that happens. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. So in all prophecy, as we read it, we should understand two things. There, there is uh, a near future prediction that happens and what is called a future future prediction that will take place. Near future and future future. Prophecy always speaks in, in both of these terms. Near future so that when the events occur, not long after the prophet prophesies, people will know that prophet was from God. The events he predicted came true. But that prophet is also speaking to future, future events so that by seeing what has happened that he predicted come true, the people of God could be comforted for the future, future judgment that is coming for all sinners who have not trusted in Christ. And this language here, he will chase his enemies into darkness, is repeated in the New Testament. In Matthew, we have it repeated three times that they will be cast into outer darkness or darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This idea is a reminder that ultimately Jesus will cast all sinners, the devil and his demons, into darkness. Jude 13 says this, they are, they are wild waves of the sea, these, these people who have turned against God, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. So this is not only a near future prediction about what's going to happen to Assyria, but a future future prediction about what is going to happen to all of God's enemies. So this is who God is. This is what he's saying specifically he's about to do to Nineveh. And so how does he comfort his people? Let's look at verses 9 through 15. Here he speaks directly to the king of Assyria. Whatever you plot against the Lord... He will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. Now, the second time is weird. I don't really know what it means. 
commentaries I read didn't really speak to it at all. What I can surmise, maybe, is that God has allowed Assyria to completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And now Judah is sitting in exile in Syria, wondering, when are they going to destroy us? Has God forgotten us? Will his promise not come true? What is his plan? And God is saying, you may have destroyed my kingdom once in the northern kingdom, but it's not coming a second time. Verse 10, for they will be consumed. This they's probably talking about the armies of Nineveh. Your soldiers, they're going to be consumed like entangled thorns. If you've ever lit, lit a, a bush of thorns on fire, it goes up pretty fast. Like the drink of a drunkard, you know, watch a drunk drink a, a, a beer in a bar and that's how fast you're going down. And like straw that is fully dry... One has gone out from you, the king, who plots evil against the Lord. Again, this goes back to verse 9. There's this chiastic structure here where verse 9 and verse 11 bookend this. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. And so the Lord speaks to Judah. This is what the Lord says. They are strong and numerous, this army of Nineveh they will still be mowed down and the king will pass away. Though I have punished you, Judah, you've been in exile, I will punish you no longer. For I will break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. You will be free. The Lord has issued an order concerning you, king of Assyria, there will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. In the New Testament, we, we get verse 15 repeated. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims good news or peace, the gospel that is coming. God comforts his people by telling them of the coming judgment. Again, this is what Revelation does. It starts with seven letters to seven churches who are experiencing different kinds of persecution, different kinds of turmoil within their churches, different kinds of sin. God writes these letters to them, telling them what they need to correct, how they need to repent, and how they must stay the course of faithfulness. And then the rest of the book of Revelation is all about what Jesus is coming to do. And we've turned it into weird book series like Left Behind and these movies where we, we worry about like when the people are going to disappear out of bed and stuff like that. Um, and where, where locusts or Blackhawk helicopters and, and weird stuff that we read into the text. When all God is saying to his people is, I am coming to judge the wicked and to save my people into everlasting joy. And so that's what we see here. God's, God's telling his people, don't be concerned 
I know you're, you're scared that I have forgotten my promise to you, but I've not. So God threatens Nineveh there in 9 through 15, and he comforts his people in verses 12 and 13 in the middle. Just like Israel here, Jesus himself gave us these kinds of words of consolation in Matthew 10, 28 through 31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not even the hairs of your head are all numbered, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. As the space just saying about, if God cares about the little things, sparrows that can be sold for a penny, does he not care more about you? The church may seem to be burdened by immorality, false teaching, and all kinds of strange doctrines. But Jesus is saying she will not be lost. While it may feel like exile now, the Lord, great in power, will preserve his church until she is ready to meet her returning king. And then quickly, we're going to read through the rest of the book because I want you to see something important. That God doesn't just come and judge, but he delights in judging the wicked. So let's read. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength, he says to Nineveh. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations. And the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers and they stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. So this king of Nineveh has, has, has gotten his forces together to go out against the Lord. And the walls of the city just crumble as God brings in the water. Beauty is stripped. Verse 7, she's carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Nineveh has been the city where many, many people have gathered and live. And now it's as if the gates have opened and like water, they're running out, fleeing the city. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. The soldiers want them to stay. The king wants them to stay, but these people are not turning back. They're gone. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, an abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, and devastation. Hearts melt, knees, insides churn, every face grows pale. Where's the lion's lair, the feeding ground for the young lions? Where the lion and lion is proud and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. In other words, where's this king? God's asking. Where is he? Where are his soldiers? They've, they've dwelt in safety. I'm seeking them out. 
the lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. In other words, this kingdom has gone out and plundered other people to make itself fat on wealth and the goods of other nations. They've taken whatever they wanted. It's filled up its dens with the kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Words you never want to hear from the Lord of armies. I am against you. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Woe to the city of blood. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without ends. They stumble over their dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery. This, this whole nation had been built on this worship of these fake gods that they had built up. And so they practice all kinds of sorcery to worship these gods who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and her sorcery. Again, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirt over your face and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth or excrement on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who's going to show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? In other words, people are just going to look at your devastation and go, oh, who's going to feel sorry for him? No one. No one will feel sorry for him. Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her? This is another big city that had already fallen, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall. Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were all dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk, and you will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortunes are fig trees with figs that ripen first and when shaken they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locust, and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day, and then when the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. In other words, when all things are going good, all these dignitaries, all the rich men in your city, they take advantage of the poor, they feed on the helpless, and then when heat's applied, nobody can find them, they're gone. They're not here to help you. 
King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you, for who has not experienced your constant cruelty? As you read through that, you get this tone in God's voice that he just takes pleasure in talking about the downfall of this nation. And you know why? Because he does. Babylon would come in and destroy Assyria. And in fact, the city of Nineveh wouldn't even be discovered for 2,000 years after they were wiped out. When God said no one would remember you, he meant no one's going to remember you. You see, God doesn't reluctantly judge sinners. It is not as though God is obliged to judge sin by his character in the sense that he struggles with it. There's some kind of internal like, I don't want to do this, but my character demands it. No, because justice is a part of who he is, he delights in bringing and executing justice. He takes pleasure in it. And we should be thankful if you are in Christ this morning that he delights to take pleasure in justice because Isaiah 53.10 says about the Messiah, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Praise God. It pleased the Lord to crush his own son for my sin and for your sin. See, the people of God should find comfort in the fact that our God is just and he will crush his enemies. It is said of Nahum that it's the only prophet that doesn't end with any kind of like blessing or promise at the end. It just ends with this question. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you for who has not experienced your constant cruelty. It just kind of ends on this sad note about what is coming for Nineveh. But it's interesting to me in verse 19, the wording that Nahum uses. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. Again, as we read the Bible, we need, to, we need to pay attention to words. They remind us of other things that God has said in different places of Scripture. And as I read verse 19, there is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. It remind me of, reminded me of Genesis three fifteen. The seed of the woman who would come and his heel would be bruised by the serpent but this coming one would bruise or crush the serpent's head, a wound that would mean death. And I think that this is a reminder to Israel that God has not forgotten the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is still coming. The enemy is going to experience an injury so severe there is no coming back from it. Jesus is coming. 
And the question is, now for us, looking back at the New Testament, Christ has come. God has crushed him for our sins. We can now trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and be found as those who are chosen by God to receive his love and his comfort and his peace. When he returns again in the last day and comes in wrath towards sin, which group are you going to be in? Will you be an enemy of God? Would you experience his wrath in the way that he has described it here in Nahum? Tremble in fear. Or would you trust in Christ? Would you trust in the death that God has given his son so that you might experience the comfort of God? And on the last day when he comes to judge the living and the dead, you would experience these words of comfort that he gave to Israel. I have not forgotten you. The guilty will never go unpunished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus. We thank you for this prophecy that reminds us that our comfort is only found in your justice and your wrath toward sin. God, we pray that we be reminded to fear the Lord and to take comfort that he is good and he does good to those who love him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.